Okay, welcome back to the Paperless Fairless. I'm Justin. I'm Kerry. All right, Kerry, we are back today with Fairless Paper number 16. Because I know how much you love doing the summaries. Do you want to take the summary? I am one? the summarizer, <laughs> and I will live up to that title now by summarizing as requested. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Take it away. Well, we are here with Federal's Paper number 16. This is another paper by Hamilton. Published on December 4th, 1787. And unlike Mr. Hamilton, I am not going to bury the lead several paragraphs or several minutes in. The main idea of this paper, essentially, is that when you have a confederation or an alliance or a federation, a, a grouping of states under a, a single uh, unifying government, then a natural tendency if those states or those substates are strong and independent is towards anarchy and disunion. Um, and it is a very a challenge for the central government to resist that. And in this paper, Hamilton is trying to show that in order to reduce the likelihood or you almost might say near certainty of that sort of um, gradual spiral into chaos happening, the states need to unify under a stronger governing document that will distribute more power upwards towards the central authority so the states don't end up fighting over um, small matters that will escalate into big matters that will eventually lead to the destruction of the Union as a whole. So moving on to how that happens is he basically talks about the fact that, okay, when you have this union of strong independent states, uh, then the natural tendency of them is to be delinquent in their obligations to the central power. And that's already happened, you know, by the time that Hamilton's written this, you know, primarily the, one of the reasons that the, the constitution was written was because the uh, government of the United States had an enormous debt um, both to its own citizens and to overseas creditors, uh, and it wasn't getting paid. There wasn't even really a plan to pay it. You know, they were trying to get the states to pay it, um, but they weren't. So the, the states weren't living up to their obligations to help the federal government. And, you know, when one state wouldn't live up to its obligations, neither would the others, and it would go downhill from there. Um So he says when this sort of thing happens, and, you know, when there's a states that are spurning their obligations to the federal government, or there's disputes between states that the central government doesn't seem to be a good job, doing a good job at stopping, then this can lead to the destruction of the country as a whole. In one of, I'd say three ways, but two of them are closely related. Um, when there's conflicts within the country, um, whether it be conflicts between states uh, about, you know, say, uh, arguing about which, which territory belongs to who, or if there's arguments among all the states about who's doing their duty and who's not to the federal government, there's then <clears throat> if it gets to a certain level, then, you could then it could cause the death of the state by one or more of the states eventually just gets fed up. Uh, and he says primarily it might be one of the larger states that feels that it has the power to assert its will in the other states. And it will basically resort to military force and try to force those other states to do what, what it wants them to do. And, and you know, if you get into all-out war because other states will join the larger state and there'll be alliances, sort of like what we talked about in uh, you know, some of the last few episodes of these uh, alliance blocks, then what the natural result of that war is that it's going to just rip apart the country because everyone's going to be more loyal to their alliance than they're going to be to the country as a whole. A closely related way that the country could die would be if that powerful state can't get any domestic allies in the other states, then they'll get foreign help and there'll be wars with the foreign country that will similarly tear apart the country because other states will be motivated also to get foreign allies and then all the states would just end up puppets of foreign powers. In contrast to that, you have what he calls the natural death as opposed to the violent death. Um, you know, this destruction by war is the, the violent death he was talking about. Um, the natural death is basically what he was saying was already in the process of happening uh, when the Federalist Papers were written. 
Um, and that would be basically the individual states just, for lack of a better term, boycott the federal government as far as what they're going to do for it. You know, they refuse to pay their bills. They refuse to pay. They refuse to follow these orders or suggestions or directives of the federal government. And then, you know, if, you, if you're a state that's paying what you owe to the federal government, or if you're a state that's taking on obligations that the federal government asks you to take on, and you see other states around you that aren't doing it, what's your natural inclination? Well, you're like, well, why am I the chump here? I'm not going to do it either. And then that just has like a domino effect, you know, all across the country. So none of the states are doing what they're supposed to be doing under the Articles of Confederation. And if no one respects the Articles and no one respects the central government as far as, you know, performing any of their duties, then what good is it? And that leads, you know, that's basically where Hamilton says we're at this point in time right now where the states aren't really doing what they're supposed to do under the Articles. <laughs> the next logical step is people are going to realize that this form of government is completely ineffectual, so, so why do we need it? He says that's, you know, in the past he's talked about, you know, being at the edge of the abyss. That's what the edge of the abyss is. The step before the individual states and its citizens say this form of government is useless. Let's get rid of it. Um, so then from there, he talks about, uh, okay, those are the three deaths. And if you want to stop, prevent that from happening, you have to, you know, he revisits a theme we've talked about in prior papers. The federal government has to operate directly on the individual citizens, not using the states as an intermediary, because the states will just choose if they want to evade it or not. And again, the best, easiest way to understand it is talking about the financial obligations of the states and the federal government, because that was the problem at the time. You know, the, 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 the states had the power to collect tariffs and taxes and then pass them on to the federal government. But as we discussed in the past, a lot of states were evasive about, well, we don't think we owe you that much or we're going to pay you in our own currency. A lot of different ways they could be evasive. And he said, that's just too easy if you give the states that power of interpreting what they think they need to do or not. If, this, if, if for example, the federal government has its own tax collectors on its own revenue cutters out there collecting taxes in the harbor themselves, then it'll just happen. You don't need the states to do it. And the only way for it to stop happening would be the states would have to actively stop you. And you, they can't lie or pretend they're not. It would be pretty obvious that they're in rebellion. And so, coming into the, 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 the end here of the summary, it says, look, I understand that even if the federal government went all the way down to the level of the individual, it would still be possible for the individual states and their citizens and their courts to not honor uh, federal directives. He says, you know, but it would be a lot harder to do than it is right now because they would have to basically actively nullify the federal order. They have to say, we know we're supposed to do this, but we're not going to do it. And again, in a callback to you know prior episodes, we've talked about whether they've been able to prophesy the Civil War. He says, "Look, I understand that that could happen, you know, but it would require a great, a large majority of these states. You know, you take the courts; it would take a big part of the population. It would take the individual state legislatures all lining up and say, we're not going to do what the federal government wants us to do.' He said, and if you get to that level where there's this great movement." This great uh, division between the states that's uh, sweeping up the whole country in it, nothing's going to stop that. You, and you can't fault this form of government that we're proposing just because it couldn't prevent any possible conflict. There's some things, some issues that might be too big for this to handle. But, you, you know, to quote, paraphrase uh, Benjamin Franklin, you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And so, you know, I think that uh, Hamilton, he sort of buries some of his ideas beneath a lot of pretty uh, flowery writing, but I think that's the core of it. You know, he's talking about how you have to go with the revised constitution to reign in the states, otherwise the country is going to die either of a violent or a natural death. That's the summation I've got. Well, I think that was uh, pretty thorough, Kerry. Um, I think you did a good job there summarizing uh, things. So let's kind of dive into a bit. You know me, I love love going top to bottom. So Yeah, well, <laughs> this is the harder one to go top to bottom in in some ways because he doesn't really get into get to his main idea so, until yeah. the second paragraph. So we can, we can skip by. I mean, I think, how would you paraphrase the, the first couple paragraphs there as far as like what 
what he was trying to say. Well, I will say uh, for individuals who have read this paper before listening to this podcast today, uh, yeah, he does mention the example of the Lyceum and Akian leagues. We're not going to give that any more attention than Hamilton does in his casual mention because mm-hmm. later on Madison really does a closer analysis, his historical analysis. So we'll just leave that aside for now. But leaving that aside, I think this first par- couple paragraphs really are just that, that main idea of look. You know, uh, Hamilton really didn't like anarchy and chaos. And he says, strong, independent states that can't really be reined in by a central federal government, doing that you know, sows the seeds of chaos because they're going to tend to want to do what they want to do. That's inevitably going to be a, a, create conflicts um, when they all don't want to do the same thing. And if you don't have a strong central power to sort of decide what the whole is going to do, then the only way it's going to be decided is through some sort of conflict between the states. Mm-hmm. And that's going to lead us to that natural death, death or violent death. Yeah. And, and that and, part would lead us more towards the violent yeah. death. And he, he mentioned that once people's uh, or even states' individual prides get inflamed and swords mm-hmm. are drawn, um, you know, there's going to be this mounting, irritated, you know, resentment, and it's just going to spiral. Uh, in, yeah. You know, um, I mean, the American Civil War is an excellent example of that because. You know, in the beginning, not not all of the southern states uh, seceded from the country all at one time. You know, a, a significant fragment. You start with one state, and then more joined them. And then as the conflict, you know, as the battle lines started being drawn, mm-hmm. people felt uh, increasingly like they needed to choose one side or the other. And, you know, you create that kind of escalation. So history yeah. tends to support uh, Hamilton's thinking there. It does. And, and we almost ended up where he suggested that outcome would be, which is the dissolution of the Union. I mean, we were on the, at the time of the Civil War, on the precipice of yeah. ending up well, I mean, the dissolution it, of the Union. It, it, there was yeah. a dissolution for a term of about four years. It, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> manner of speaking. I yeah. mean, it was held together, yeah. as he prophesied, only by military force. Yeah. But he... Um, yeah, and, and, and he does. He doesn't say it's an absolute guarantee of terminating, but he is a probable termination of the dissolution of the mm-hmm. union. Uh, so, you know, and then we were close. So. Yeah. You know, one thing that I was thinking about as I was reading this paper is that if you're getting away from his particular point in this paper, mm-hmm. you could see how the anti-federalists, when they read stuff like this in some of the last few papers where he's talking increasingly about we've got to have these strong standing armies to keep the states in line, mm-hmm. you can see where, from their perspective, that might lend credence in concern about Hamilton's centralized power tendencies and monarch- monarchical tendencies of, yeah. wait a second, we just fought this whole Revolutionary War and broke free of England, so we'd have more freedom to in, pursue it- our own... You yeah, know, pursue our own happiness and our own versions of liberty. Yeah. And here, the first thing you wanted to do with this new government is have these strong standing armies breathing down our neck, where if we step out of line, you're going to send this army in and, you know, crush any, uh, liber- you know, libertarian ideals that we have yeah. here as far as wanting to exactly. our own Exactly, yeah. We just, in, in the Articles of Confederation were really a reflection of that concern. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way they were set up with having the states basically be independent sovereigns. Exactly. Uh, that were just sort of in a buddy system, you know. Exactly. Um, and and they had real fear of strong centralized power and mm-hmm. strong centralized, you know, and then a standing yeah. army that would, like you said, come in and occupy and suppress. Yeah. Uh, and, and absolutely right. And and I think in some of the anti-federalist responses to these papers, they're very much saying, uh, you know, look, federalists, your true intentions are are shown by exactly. by your own words. Uh, you want to oppress everybody. I think it'll be interesting to see how, how Madison handles this when he comes in on the on these issues uh, in papers. I believe it's eighteen, nineteen, and twenty. Yeah. Um, because trying to put your shoe, putting myself in the shoes of someone at that time, I can see myself sort of being torn between the two sides of Federalists and Anti-Federalists. Because on one hand, as Hamilton and Madison point out, even Anti-Federalists agree that this our government is too weak. Under, under the Articles of Confederation. Yeah, our, the Articles of Confederation government. Yeah. Again, putting myself in the shoes of the time. Our government there being yeah. Articles of Confederation. The Confederation government is just too weak, too chaotic. There's no, no power to do anything. It's got to get better than that. Yeah. But on the other hand, if I was a middle-of-the-road guy, 
reading something like this from Hamilton about well, what we need to do is centralize all power and have these strong standing armies that if any state doesn't obey the the federal sovereign that we're going to go and crush them. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, well, I don't know if I like that either. You know, yeah. I, I'd want to, I think I'd be looking for like, well, what's the middle path? And, and that's what I'm curious about is when Madison comes in, is he going to moderate this message a little bit more and say, yeah. look, look, when we're talking about strong standing armies. We're not talking about having, you know, the King's guard marching around. And, yeah. You know, calling people off in the night if they disagree. We're just talking about how if the in, if the state legislatures are denying the citizens of their own the federal rights, yeah, we're going to make sure that that those rights are honored. So I think that that's what Hamilton and and Madison Jay and in, in the Constitution was trying to do was they were trying to create in some ways a new point on the spectrum of governments as people have known them, right? Like on one end, you've got anarchy, just no government at all. Mm -hmm. Then you have your small, direct representative democracies where everyone, everyone goes and throws their stone in a jar on every type of, you know, and they... Classic Greek, ancient Greek democracy. Okay. And then, you know, you end up with these uh, confederacies or uh, confederations of loosely knit individual sovereign states Mm -hmm that are just sort of buddies they help each other out and they get each other's back maybe at certain yeah. points but at the end of the day they betray each other, and they, betray each other they go to war with each other you know and then for the people at the time you know they had and that's in many ways sort of what the articles of confederation were like we're all together the states are there but everyone has their own sovereigns and they all retain their own authority mm-hmm. but we're going to sort of work and be each other's friends exactly. for the benefit of the whole and then really you had strong federal centralized power of the kind they had gotten rid of, which was, you know, the monarch and the, the strong federal power that, that yeah. the individual states, you know, whether it be had, a king or whether it be a legislature, yeah. it doesn't really matter Didn't if it's really. a parliament or a king, if it's this power that's well beyond your ability to influence, influence. or discuss yeah. with, or, you know, really go connected to, if, you, if it just feels like there's this power well beyond your reach, well above your reach, just sending down orders to you and you've got to do them, then... And so, at some point, does it matter if it's king or not? They're tr- yeah, and so they're trying to slide. They're trying to be the middle ground there between the artist and the federation and absolute rule by a, by a monarch um, or a strong, heavy federal system. And and he, and he's trying to find that. They're trying to find that sweet spot in between. Mm-hmm. Um, and the anti-federalists, I think, a lot of times are afraid that, like, look, you're trying to create something that just in the point of human history just hasn't it hasn't ever happened really and and you yeah. know like what's the guarantee that we're not going to backslide right into the into the the yeah. you know the the monarch uh uh and the overbearing federal power yeah so you're trying you to know, create something that can't be created that's what i think your view yeah yeah it works in academia but it's not going to have actual world application is what is in some ways i think what the anti-federalists were, were saying and and that's and and in the cost like the risk in their minds of like this is great and all in theory, but if you guys mess this up, if we go down this road and this gets gets off the rails, mm. we're gonna have to fight a whole other you know revolution, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. in order in order to fix it. So I mean, you know, like they're looking for a much less drastic approach. It's interesting that as we're talking about how the people you know in, in the generation of the founding fathers and how they viewed how realistic it was to create uh, you know a federal demo- federalist or republican democracy um, they might have thought about it discussed it in the same way that modern people talk about uh, communist government now mm-hmm. you know what well, a lot of those th- those elements you were laying out are ones I've heard from individuals when you talk about well why you know why or why not communism which is, you know it comes off and down to, well, if human nature was completely different, yeah. and yet everyone didn't always operate in their own self-interest, and people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, had utopian minds, in a theoretical world, communism would be perfect. But the real world being what it is, mm-hmm. people are how people are, and the natural of com- the natural tendency of communist governments has been to devolve into tyranny yeah. because the people who have governmental power tend to want to get more and more and more of it. Yeah. And pretty soon you end up with situations consistently where instead of being a utopia, it's a situation where people live in fear of their government. Yeah. And it's just interesting to see this parallel of did the anti-federalists view the Hamilton model of strong, consolidated uh, federal government 
the way that people now view, yeah, that's unrealistic. You can't, you know, communism communism or even socialism. Yeah. yeah. Nice in theory, but if we try it, it's going to be a disaster. Yeah. Is this just going to result in tyranny again? It'll just be called a president instead of a king. Yeah. So, uh, so he gets past that, Hamilton does in this paper, in as far as, uh, Saying, look, that's uh, that's one of the ways that the union is going to die, and then he gets into says, look, what the more it gets into talking about the more more realistic in this the, the situation, which is in his eyes happening already. Um, well, if, if possible, before we move on, oh, I, wonder, yeah. I want in. to briefly touch on for our listeners because um, I think Hamilton just skims through it. I want to flesh it out a little bit. Fire away. Uh, um, what the delinquencies are that he mm-hmm. mentions that could lead to the violent or natural death. What is it that's going to happen between the states that they're either going, it's going to be so serious that they're either going to take up arms against each other or they're all just going to refuse to be part of the operation of federal government and do things on their own. Okay. And I think the most obvious one, um, because it's what led to the constitutional convention in the first place is the big issue for government at the time was this overwhelming national debt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, these the, the to get money, the, the federal government had to go to the states and ask them for basically contributions because they had the federal government had no taxation power. And so, you know, we talked again and again about how different states, you know, some were more, some were better at others at paying their obligations. None of them were very good, and some of them just refused to pay almost anything. And that I think that's one of the main delinquencies because you know, at some point, if you know, say a larger state, say Virginia. I think you know, when he talks about larger states, the first one at the time you think about would be Virginia because it was so, so powerful at the time. Um, but uh, when larger states feel like they're sharing all the burden, you know, would they consider just you know taking action against the smaller states? That's one of the delinquencies. The other obvious one I think is the one that would be more likely. I think the the debt one, the issue of debt, would be more likely to cause other states to just not pay on their own. They wouldn't like invade mm-hmm. Delaware to force them to pay. They just said, well, we're not going to pay either. Yeah. On the other hand, the one that might be more likely to lead to military conflict would be... Well, you know, you know Rogue Island would... See, I'm, I'm trying to... <laughs> but you're right. That's the best example of like, oh, we got we made up all this own money of Rhode Island yeah. bucks and we're going to pay off our debt with that. I mean, if you're Virginia and you've paid it off in real money... In real money, yeah. I'd be pretty miffed. You yeah. know, I was like, oh, so we're just going to use Virginia bucks then. Yeah, um, yeah they're, they're one of the best examples. But then the other thing that might be a, a delinquency mm-hmm. of a different type is, again, there were several territorial disputes at the time, you know, with New Hampshire and uh, New York arguing what would eventually become Vermont, mm-hmm. uh, several other states arguing. Well, we about talked about the... Um Pennsylvania. Uh, the Pennsylvania, yeah, where, where the border should be or not be. Exactly. Like Connecticut. Exactly. Uh, River yeah. boundaries, mm-hmm. uh, lake boundaries. So there was a lot of disputes between states about where the line is drawn between the yeah. two of them. Because Google Maps did not exist. Yes. You couldn't just zoom out and say, oh, here's here's the border of the Surveyors state. Surveyors <laughs> are sometimes a mixed quality. But regardless, you can see how if there's an argument between two states over who owns what, and there's no higher authority that could issue a ruling on it and yeah. really decide it that you know that would uh, higher authority that would be respected yeah. then that's one where it would be more likely to lead to actual armed, armed conflict absolutely because, because that tends that tends to be a cause of armed conflict between countries to this day yeah, exactly and, the, over and at the time the individual states were somewhat like individual nations mm-hmm. not not states in the sense of like we think of yeah. a state and the other thing is you know the state talk, has a dual meaning yeah and, and and the other thing we talk about at the time one of the few things of value that the states actually had was the land mm-hmm. and the sort of the, the resources that were in the land or on the land. Like that's that's the primary source of wealth for a lot of these states. That's what America had a lot of. We didn't have a lot of our currency. And so, and we talked about that. And so, like there, which which only amplifies their desire to ensure that their version of the borders are mm-hmm. are respected and everyone agrees that hey, those are our trees or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. like that's where the, the property line is. And like you said, if there's if two people get into arguing over the primary source of wealth for any one of these states, yeah. um, it's going to be really a touchstone for for conflict. Yeah, and there's a, there's a lot of things that cause conflict too. There could be you know that states have different tariffs between each other. There could be a trade war. Mm-hmm. There could be citizens traveling from one state to another that are snagged up in state laws that they weren't aware of. Smuggling hands. Yeah. 
or more seriously, <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. or more seriously at the time, you know, even though, um, you know, this was the time when the issue of abolition of slavery was just starting to come yeah, up. Absolutely. And if you went to a state where it said they had abolished slavery and you mm-hmm. took your slaves there, you know, um, if the laws were different, yeah. you know, you might be surprised by it. But the point being that, you know, this isn't just some hypothetical thing where Hamilton's, you know, saying, well, there might be causes of conflict between the states. There were causes of conflict, conflict between the states and already. So people at yeah. the time would have understood this. So he takes that as a given and the listeners should yeah. understand that it was a real thing. And so from that you get to, mm-hmm. okay, what happens if there's war? Yeah. What happens if there is universal noncompliance with um, federal laws? Okay. Uh, so from there then, where does he go? Well, then he gets into uh, the causes of death, I believe. Uh, he talks about, you know, so you take you you take as a given mm-hmm. that you've got these causes of conflict. So how are you going to resolve them? You know, and the the one is you know violent you know, is engaged federal, in war. Yeah, he, he, I think he yeah, suggested the um, war against non-compliant states, as yeah, he talks about. Yeah, and again, I think resorting to military force or armed force is going to be more likely in. If the if for example, if the federal government found against one state or another in a territorial dispute, and the state that they said was right said, "Okay, now give us the land," mm-hmm. and the other state said, "No, we think they're wrong. Uh, we're going to take this up in the next session of the legislature. Just cool your jets. We're going to keep it for now." That could be one of those times when the 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 winning state, you know, that they got the uh, the land by the you know grant from the federal government would say, "Well, we're going to." We're going to go and occupy it then. And the other states say, that, well, no, you're not. We're sending your own people there. If, mm-hmm. you know, if you have a strong centralized federal government standing army, yeah. you know, the federal government will just go and send their troops in to enforce a decree. But if you don't, mm-hmm. then it's self-help. The states and, have to decide between themselves. So he says, like, it should be, you know, it, it, uh, this is the part that I thought was interesting. He, he, he writes, because it seems to require no pains to prove that the states ought to ought not to prefer a national constitution, which could only be kept in motion by the instrumentality of a large army continually on, uh, continually on foot to execute, to execute the ordinary requisitions or decrees of the government. Yet this is the plain alternative involved by those who wish to deny it the power of extending its operations to individuals. And so he said, you know, look, the anti-federalists want to keep us for the keep the federal government from having the ability to legislate laws that apply directly to people, mm-hmm. you know, and that, you know, really what they're advocating for there is a situation where you only have a federal army, at which point the only way they can get anything done from a federal standpoint is to go in and enforce it. Enforce federal laws. Via, via the army. Mm-hmm. And that's going to lead to military despotism. And that's, you know, he's saying that nobody wants that. And the reality is in the current environment, he said, you know, we don't have the ability to do that anyways. We don't have, you know, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, but going back you know, to the prior papers, you know, we talked about you know, the truism of ultimately all law is only law because you can enforce a sanction or penalty for mm-hmm. its violation. Yeah, and but there, there are other ways to enforce force. it versus besides the army. Is what I think. You know, yeah, but about. I think he, does, you know, he would say that ultimately you do have to have at least the threat of an army. Otherwise, the you know, the law won't be respected mm-hmm. as it wasn't respected. Under the Articles of Confederation, mm-hmm. and it's interesting again about like ultimately the appeal to the army, because again you know it just calls forward again to, and it's almost forgotten in the scope of the larger event. You know the Civil War, the start of the Civil War began with Southern states occupying uh, and seizing federal property, and the original justification and use of the federal troops going down to the South was well, look, no matter what else we're disagreeing about. You can't take federal property, and we're going to own and occupy our, you know, the the federal government's property down here. You can't seize our forts and our arsenals, and everything spotted from there. I mean, mm-hmm. those were the uh, that was the 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 spark that set everything off as far as people actively shooting. Okay. So again, it's like uh, this the, this military force it really plays a big role at times in our nation's history. Uh, he goes on and. He then says, you know, the principle of legislation for sovereign states uh, supported by military coercion has never been really effectual, though. You know, um, yeah. and, and I do I, agree that like, you're not going to have a good govern, a good functioning country if the only way you can enforce mm-hmm. the law 
is to physically go and take an army into one part of the country and say, obey, exactly, obey. The default needs to be where everyone yeah. understands what the law is and it's clear what your duties are under it. You mm-hmm. know that ultimately that if you rebel against it, uh, there's going to be consequences. But because you know what it is, you know what you're supposed to be doing. You're more likely to do it. So, and he goes on from there, and he, he talks and he says that you know it, the the constitution, the government must be founded as to the objects committed to its care upon the reserve of the principle contended for uh, by the opponents of the. Oh, hold on, I'm going to edit that. Reverse of the principle. Yeah. So uh, that really, the government needs to care for its citizens, and that that when and and do so directly, and that there's not a need for intermediate legislatives and they got to have the ability to employ um the arm of you know basically the ordinary magistrates um and use the courts uh in in the prop you know normal civil uh discourse and 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 a judiciary uh and the executive to enforce the legislative and he, he gets into this you know the system he's talking about the system that everybody knows and understands today yeah um and, and, and he's got a strong yeah. argument there. I mean, essentially what it comes down to is, look, the federal government doesn't need the state governments to be the middlemen on a lot of the our interact, yeah. the, the government's interaction with the regular people. In order for citizens to feel like they have a loyalty and a tie to the federal government, they've really got to have an understanding and feel an effect of mm-hmm. the federal government in their everyday lives. If everything's filtered through this middleman of the state, then... You know, ultimately, because it's more real to them in their everyday lives as far as the benefits it gives them and the power it exercises on them, individuals are still going to be primarily loyal to their states first and the federal government is a distant second, you know. Mm-hmm. But if, on the other hand, you know, the federal government's more real to them because they have interactions with it every day directly, then it'll tend to encourage loyalty to the federal government superior to or at least equal to the loyalty felt to the states. Yeah. You know, and that's that just seems to be an obvious and strong argument now. But at the time, I think that wasn't understood. You know, that wasn't something that everybody agreed on because people just felt like, well, naturally, you know, our friends and neighbors and fellow countrymen are primarily the people we live with in our state. We have more interaction with yeah. them, and our only loyalty to the federal government flows through them because our state belongs to this larger government mm-hmm. entity. Yeah, we feel some loyalty to it, but ultimately. I'm more a citizen of my state than I am a citizen of the United States. Yeah. It's a secondary loyalty. So, uh, and that really is something that has changed and shifted uh, over time. The sense of loyalty to the country first now, today, versus this particular state. Yeah. Whereas back then, it was more a sense of loyalty to your state versus And again, the that, another, another, another influence of the Civil War, you know, on our nation's history because, you know, uh, when a lot of times before that time when people would talk about their country they mm-hmm. could be referring to their state or to the United States uh, you know uh, many many southern generals or southern you know southern military officers who um, went to the south who were from southern states would refer to well I've got to stay loyal to my country the country of Virginia yeah um, uh, and it seems bizarre almost for us to hear today here like country to be called a state but mm-hmm. that was the thinking of the time um so i guess that's a good inside point too of yeah. the constitution itself didn't resolve that issue mm-hmm. it took you know ongoing evolution of american history to decide you know ultimately what is your country is it your state or is it the united states mm-hmm. so he then gets in and he talks are we going to where he says to get you know you have to understand the difference between yeah. Yeah, I think non-compliance and active resistance. Yes, and I think he he. Well, I'd be happy to explore that topic a little bit. So yeah, and he and he okay. So he talks about the issues between non-compliance and direct, uh, direct, um, open rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says the reason why he draws the distinction though in the first place is, you know, I think it was there was an objection out there that said. Hey, look! Any state that's dissatisfied with the authority of the union could just basically obstruct the laws uh, and bring issues, uh, bring it to the point then where force is needed. Uh, and and this is why Hamilton says, well, if you're going to go down that path, you got to understand the difference between just simple non-compliance under the Constitution versus you know full-on mm-hmm. direct act of resistance. Yeah. Um, and with the non-compliance issue, 
Oh, here, I just, you mentioned you might want to delve into this a little bit. Yeah. Go ahead, fire away. See, I think one of the primary purposes of Hamilton here is saying, look, one of the problems we have right now with enforcing federal authority on states is it's really hard to tell the difference between when a state is actively saying we refuse to follow our obligation, we refuse to fulfill our obligations or to follow the you know, instructions of the federal government versus we're not really able to. And again, mm-hmm. one of the best ways to understand it is through this, through this um, lens of revenue collection. Because you know, at the time, under the Austrian Confederation, you know, they didn't have W-2s or anything mm-hmm. for people to get taxed. And one of the main ways the government's got revenue was when imports came in, you know, they would have, you know, tax collectors at the ports and they would have, you know, patrol ships out in the oceans, you know, when the ships would come in with goods, they would tax those goods and, you know, they didn't have those tariff taxes and they would collect those trade taxes and that would fund the government. And under the Confederation, the states were primarily the ones who collected those taxes of trade, you know, not only with other countries, but between states. Mm -hmm. And then the federal government would have to say, well, can we have some of that money? And then... What you would have is a lot of states, you know, the states wouldn't say, well, no, we refuse. We refuse to pay our obligations to the federal government. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, they would be more likely to say something like, well, actually, we, didn't, we weren't able to collect a lot of money. We actually have to use it to pay our state needs first. And as soon as we have enough money, we'll pay we'll you. Pay you. Yeah. But right now, we really got to look after our own people first. And so... You know, it's like right, what people do when they don't have enough money to pay something. Well, can you wait until Monday to cash this yeah. or I'll get back Checks to in you? The mail. Yeah, can you give me until next month? Yeah. Evasions rather than saying, you wouldn't go to your landlord and say, I refuse to pay my rent. You'd say, well, I don't have it on me right now. Can you give me another week or two? And so that was, that was continually happening. And what Hamlin's saying that we should do is say, we shouldn't have that situation in the first place. You know, it makes it too easy for states to, you know, to pretend it's hard that they can't do something instead of they won't. If you take away the ability of the states to do those tariff taxes, mm-hmm. instead making federal tax collectors at the ports and federal um, revenue um, cutters, revenue ships out in the seas, where they're actively out there collecting revenue and sending straight to the federal government, then there won't be any need, there won't be any ability of the states to spin the issue. You know, if they do nothing, we keep getting the revenues from the federal government. The only way for them to stop that from happening is actively going down to the ports and stopping the federal you know, tax collectors from doing their job. So it'll be a clear situation mm-hmm. where if you're stopping the federal, federal uh, tax collectors from doing their job, you're actively resisting. And he says if that situation is clear, then you know who's making a decision to resist federal authority and who's not. I think that was one of the main points he's getting at is, We've got this process that can't but fail to yeah. create bad situations. And he, so he said, you know, if the legislatures make this decision, and the, the state legislatures make this decision, mm. you know, it's it's not something they're going to do uh, under the Constitution if they tried this, mm. try to pull this. Um, it's not something you're going to do very lightly mm. or very, you know, and be rash about it mm. because it's going to pose a great risk uh, to their. Um, ability to maintain the power that they have. I mean, like they're gonna they're gonna incur the incur a response yeah. from the federal level if they just because decide to usurp power with, from the federal government. They're not gonna pretend. Yeah, they're not. That gonna, they're exactly. not doing something wrong. Exactly. They're going to have to say, "I know I'm doing something wrong. Come stop me." So, um, and I think that's one of the main things he's trying to, to do under the constitution, you know, in supporting the constitution, and say, "Look." Right now, something we all can agree on, for the most part, is the state legislatures have been feckless. They haven't really done what they're supposed to do. And that's why we're here in the first place. We need to change the default. Because right now, if the states don't do what they're supposed to do, if they do nothing, which tends to be what they're doing, is doing nothing useful. If they do nothing right now, the whole federal government is undermined. Mm -hmm. Why not create a situation where if the state governments still want to continue to do nothing, the federal government will keep operating. Create a situation where the consequences of the states not fulfilling their obligation won't really matter because the federal government will already be helping itself. It'll already have revenue. It'll already have the ability to 
you know, pass laws on to have affect individual people. And if the individual states, you know, disappoint in how effective they are, the only it will only affect their individual state citizens about the state matters, and it won't sort of create this contagion and disease that will spread and have an effect on everybody. You know, you don't want a situation where what Delaware decides to do or not do, you know, causes this domino of non-compliance, mm-hmm. you know, domino fall of non-compliance that is hurting everybody from Georgia and New Hampshire. I so, think that's what we're trying to do here. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm, so our newfound spirit of, of agreeing with each other is continuing through this paper. Um, it's the, nice to alternate now. Yeah, I think, yeah. So, um, the Hamilton, then, the next point that he makes is, you know, if you get a group of citizens that decide that they, instead of, the legisl- instead of a state legislature not following a federal decree or federal law, what, if, what, what happens if you have a, set, a group of citizens that decide, you know, hey, we're not going to follow this federal law and, and we're not going to listen to it? And he said, you know, the ordinary s- structure of government that's already in place in the states that the states employ, you know, will work here, too, where you have your magistrates and your courts you know, that'll come in and, and they'll be there. The federal courts will be there to mm-hmm. enforce federal law through the normal uh, reasoned approach that, that just like the states do. You know, you'll mm-hmm. have a body of magistrates and judges that can, you know, enforce enforce law. And, and we'll, yeah. we'll deal with these uh, disorderly and sort of disruptive pockets of individual citizens mm-hmm. that decide they can thumb their nose at the federal government and say, yeah. well, hey, we're not going to follow that law. And and that's played out just fine throughout the course of the last couple hundred plus years. Is yeah, when for you the most have part. you know for the most part. I mean, there's been situations, but I mean, for the most part, when when someone says talk about the rule before we talk about the exception. Okay, yeah, and um, you know the the federal courts are there to, to orderly and and through having an order and orderly and calm you know enforcement of federal law. Uh, yeah. And I'm sorry, you what point did you want to make? You sound like you well, wanted. Well, I agree with you. Yeah, generally. you know, in that. You know, uh, you know. Again, for the listeners, if someone violates a federal law, or if someone, uh, uh, you know, commits an infraction that you know, in a civil sense, that someone can sue under federal law, you know, you don't have to necessarily take the person. The person doesn't have to necessarily be taken to federal court mm-hmm. to enforce it. The state courts can enforce federal law, um, and typically do. Yeah. Um, and so that's worked out because because if it's clear, the judges don't necessarily have any, any moral problem or legal problem with yeah. saying, okay, federal law is something we have jurisdiction over too and we'll enforce it. There are exceptions. There are things that you have to take to federal court. Yes. Uh, but for the most part, it's worked out. Interestingly enough, though, um, there are exceptions where that even though they're not major in the context of the whole mm-hmm. system, tend to uh, call some aspects of... Uh, Hamilton's assumptions into question. And I think one of the most notable at this time is uh, how there's been some states that have chosen to legalize marijuana. Okay, oh, yeah. Which remains a federal crime. It is. And, you know, it remains illegal under federal law, but these particular states have said, it's funny, they've actively, they have done what Hamilton says that they're less likely to do. They're not rationalizing or saying, oh, we're not able to enforce this law or anything like that. They've actively said, we're not going to do it. We we think this is fine, that we should be able to do this. We're not going to follow the federal law. And they have explicitly directed their state law enforcement officers and government officials, do not enforce this federal law. We haven't sent federal troops into Colorado or any place, <laughs> but yeah. it's interesting because it shows where. Well, it might not send the army in, but you know, there's there's um, some real debate as to whether or not, like the federal, like the the DEA, which are still part of the executive, mm-hmm. is is going to start going into some of those states that have legalized marijuana mm-hmm. in the possession, usage, and production, and sale, and distribution of marijuana, and, and actually enforce federal law, and start arresting people under, yeah. you know, with their federal authority, uh, and when that, if that were to start occurring, it would be controversial, it would be usually controversial, yeah. and and you're going to see, we'll get, we'll get right back into those states versus federal rights debates that have, have uh, bubbled up at, at times throughout, throughout history. Yeah. I just think that's really interesting in the context of this paper because yeah, this paper is all mind. sort of thought. This paper is all about how the federal structure and the state structure work together to have enforceable laws, you know, mm-hmm. um, directly on the individual. But it shows that even now, it's become more accepted in American society that, yeah, of course, you know, 
federal law is federal law. It's supreme to state law, and we we have to enforce that just like we enforce our own state laws. Yeah. But when it doesn't happen, there's still that potential for conflict. Absolutely. Because and, it, and maybe it hasn't happened to that extent so long that nobody really knows what to do about it because it's become so accepted that you, you know people in Colorado there's there's shops that you could just go and buy marijuana. People are acting a lot of people just act like it's completely legal. Yeah. No matter what, and they'll, they'll act like they're not going to have any you know, problems with it. And how can they act that way? Because it's still illegal under federal law. And the reality of how they act that way is because we've worked on this assumption so long of the state enforces the federal that it's very difficult. The federal government doesn't have the resource to enforce it on their own. Because well, you don't have a federal police officer in every county. Usually, yeah. the, sta- the county sheriffs or the, the state officials... Mm-hmm take on so much of a heavy burden of enforcing some of these federal laws that the federal government has passed laws with the assumption that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And when the states decide to stop enforcing it, do they have the ability to enforce it? Well, at this point, yeah, it almost seems as though that the federal government's not quite sure how to, what, you know, do we, do they really want to make this a powder keg issue or not? Yeah. You know, uh, and do they really want to pursue it or just let things play out a little bit more just because, I, I'll be honest, like, this is, is such a unique situation in our time that mm-hmm. it's been so long, I think, since something like this, like a direct disobedience to federal law yeah. by the states. They're not, I don't know that anybody really knows how to handle it. <laughs> I mean, the similar situation might be in the process of developing right now regarding, you know, individual cities that don't believe that they should be enforcing the federal. Oh, yeah, you've got another example. Yes. That's another example of where it's an interesting it's, constitutional time. It is. Um, because that's, again, that's sort of been a procedural issue that's been dormant in America for a long time. It's just been accepted as a given of, okay, if there's something the federal government has the authority to make laws mm-hmm. and rules on, uh, criminalize or not, then we understand it's our duty as a state to co-enforce that, often with much more resources on, resources on the ground than the federal government themselves has. Is it the supremacy clause? What's the... Yeah, as far yeah. as supremacy state law, yeah. uh, federal law versus, law versus so, state, yeah. Um, and so for those who listen, there's there's a little clause in the Constitution that if there's an area of law that the federal government enacts a law in, mm-hmm. and the state has also enacted a law, if there's a conflict, the federal law wins. Federal law trumps. Yeah. Okay. And and that's that's how we've been operating at least for the last mm-hmm. hundred plus years. And usually and the now, dispute has been whether or not not whether or not federal law is supreme. Yeah. But if the state wants to try to wiggle well, out of it, they'll use that same evasion of the legal evasion of, well, we're not really saying we don't think federal law is supreme. We just think this is an area under the Tenth Amendment that the state should control and not the federal government. And it's under but these situations right now, those non-compliant cities and states really haven't made an argument like no, that. No, no, no. This is flat out saying we're, we're not doing do it. it. That's we're in, yeah, in, yeah, in this quote-unquote sanctuary, sanctuary cities. They're just, no, we're just not going to enforce federal yeah, law. Same way with the And the same with the marijuana situation with the states. They're saying, no, we're just not going to enforce federal law. Yeah, they're like, not really arguing that the federal government doesn't have authority. They're just saying we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. And so channel basically says this should almost never happen. I think that honestly segues us into the final section of you know, this paper where he talks about when it could still happen, even under this new regime of the Constitution, when the laws are clear and yeah. directly on people. He says, there's still a weakness where suddenly these new the idea, these big ideas seem to be sweeping across the country through states yeah. that are changing attitudes, and we might not be able to stop that. If a significant part of the population, either a size, either a majority or a very sizable minority, says we disagree stands up and disengages yeah then maybe nothing could stop again that's one of the things that led to the civil war is there's such a split of such a you know large portion of the population it couldn't be contained similarly you know where that leads you with these these ideas is have ideas about marijuana changed so much recently and ideas about immigration changed so much i i think that on those two issues and again I don't think there is issues that will tear America apart so much no. as like the issues of Hamilton's time did. But either way, though, you know, the ended up here with Hamilton. I agree. You know, he he says, look, there's going to be certain situations that are going to pop up that no form of government is going to be able to address on paper, and yep. it's just going to have to be dealt with. And the slavery and, question is probably the best you know, example in our national history. Yeah. The question to be asked is. And do the current disagreements open disagreements regarding 
immigration and marijuana, among other things, signal another rising tide of, you know, division that's sweeping the country that could escalate into an unsolvable problem, or are they just one-off issues that will eventually be resolved within the normal processes of government and society? I guess we'll have to, to you know, stay tuned and we'll find out, right? <laughs> I don't know if we'll be covering that, but it's a good, I think it's you a know, question to be asked. It is. That's, but I mean, is it, are, are they... Are they just issues themselves that are we're going to resolve in the normal course of our history, or are they symptoms of a larger issue larger that we're divisions. Need to be concerned about? Yeah. Larger divisions. Um, well, I don't know. I guess are we'll, they, as he puts it, the uh, paroxysm? I think he calls it. Yeah. The this great tumult that sweeps the country, mm-hmm. and it's an it's an interesting question, but. You know, you agree. I agree that as he closes, you know, no government can, you know, no government's perfect. Nothing could stop an impossible situation. Hopefully, we're not in an impossible situation now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, But I definitely end up seeing and agreeing with Hamilton in that the requirements and the provisions of the Constitution definitely do seem superior to the Articles of Confederation in being able to resolve the issues. and I think we got one more paper after this by Hamilton on this series of issues about, uh, you know, what, why the constitutional help unity as opposed to factionalism and fractures of the states. And then it'll be interesting to get into the three papers by Madison to see his take okay. on it. Thanks again for joining us uh, on the paperless writer list. Uh, and thanks for listening. Don't forget to, you know, rate, like, and subscribe uh, wherever you get our podcasts and tell a friend, tell a neighbor. Um, and uh, we'll see that, you in yeah. episode we'll see you 17. In, we'll see you in the next 17. episode 17. 17. All right. Thanks again, everybody. Bye. All right. Bye.